0: Good morning and greetings once again, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I did last night, I'd like to ask you to look in the back of your hymnal or uh, find on your phone, 1689confession.com, or perhaps you brought a copy with you. But have your Bibles close at hand as well, because we'll be looking into the Scriptures as the Lord allows us to. My purpose this morning is to give something of a survey, and exposition of chapter 19 of the Confession titled, Of the Law of God. That will be the focus of our attention. Now by way of introduction, I want to ask a question and try to answer it, and the question may seem a little bit unusual to you, but I think it's a very important question we need to wrestle with and um, give an answer. The question is, why is chapter 19 here? Now, I I don't simply mean, why do we have a chapter on the law? Because that's important. What I'm asking is, why is this chapter 19 of the Confession? Why isn't it chapter 2 or chapter 32? Why is it chapter 19? And I think it's important to understand what's happening in the flow of thought in the Confession because it is a system of theology. It's carefully put together. Our fathers who constructed this, first at the Westminster Assembly, then the Congregationalists at a meeting that was called the Savoy meeting in London in 1658, and then following that, the Baptists in 1677, there was a reason why these chapters were placed in the order that they are. And so we ought to ask the question, why is the law of God, chapter 19, in the Confession of Faith. Let me try to answer that question for you. There is a very specific structure to this confession. It's not simply 32 separate doctrinal issues where people said, well, you know, we need to have a chapter on Scripture, and we need to have a chapter on God, and we need to have a chapter on assurance, and we need to have a chapter on perseverance, and we need to have a chapter on marriage, so let's write these chapters and put them together. Actually, there's much more to it than that. The first six chapters of the Confession of Faith are what I call first principles. I chose that name simply because they lay down a foundation. Everything else is built upon them. It's the doctrine of Scripture, and it's the doctrine of God that we find in the first five chapters. And then chapter six deals with sin, the, the fall and sin, and the punishment of it. And so all of those are foundational issues that lay down for us a basis upon which Christian theology is built. The next long section of the confession begins in chapter 7, and it runs through chapter 20. It's the longest section of the confession of faith, and it deals with the covenant. Now, maybe you'll remember chapter 7 is called Of God's Covenant, and it sets the field, it lays out the basic doctrine, and the following 12 or 13 chapters open up aspects of that. Chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, and it speaks to us about the one who brings the covenant of salvation into history and into the lives of individuals. We are what we are because of Jesus Christ. When we think of covenant theology, we must think about him. Chapter 9 of Free Will speaks about man's relation to God's covenant in four states, innocence, sin, grace, and glory and how we relate to the salvation that God gives us by way of covenant in those four different states. Chapters 10 through 13 speak about God's actions, effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. These are all divine works. Do you ever ever wonder why, when I began to, to wrestle with this, what caused me to wrestle with it was the fact that in the order of chapters, Justification comes before faith, where typically when we speak about the order of salvation, we speak about salvation by faith, and we think of faith preceding justification. So I, I was asking myself the question, why this order? And was able to work it out so that 13, 10, 11, 12, and 13, calling, justification, adoption, and sanctifying are all God's works in the covenant. Chapters 14 through 18 are our responses to what God does, so chapter fourteen, faith. Now God grants us the faith, but He doesn't believe in our behalf. We're the ones who believe. Fifteen is repentance. He grants us repentance, but we are the ones who must repent. Sixteen, good works. That which now we're, we're called by the Lord to live a life of good works. He grants us by His Spirit the ability to do them, but He doesn't do them. He expects us to do these things. Then perseverance, we are the ones who persevere. He preserves us, but we persevere. And then assurance is chapter 18, which speaks to us about the blessing that the Lord gives to us through his promises. But you and I are the beneficiaries, and we're the ones who experience assurance. So you see, from chapter 10 through chapter 18, the blessings of salvation are ordered in that way, to speak first of God's actions and then to speak about those things that he grants to us so that we might respond to what he has done. Then the next chapter is chapter 19 of the law and chapter 20 of the gospel and the extent of the extent thereof. Now, think about it with me. After describing the grace of salvation in this long section from chapter 7 of God's covenant all the way through chapter 18 of assurance. It's necessary to explain law as it is revealed in Scripture. It it addresses questions like this. How has law functioned in the history that is recorded in Scripture? I'm sure you agree with me that the history recorded in Scripture is sober history in space and time. It's a true account of true events in the lives of men and women over a long period of time. So how does law function during those epochs in which people lived? Are there distinctions in the law that we must note? Should we pay attention to what the Word of God tells us about law? How does law relate to unbelievers? And how does law relate to believers? Are there differences in the way that the law relates? And then a big one is are new covenant believers, that's us, are we subject to the Mosaic law? Because it is the law of Moses. They are requirements or commandments or precepts that were given to Moses. And a legitimate question is, if these things were revealed and commanded by God, are we subject to them? And so chapter 19 is placed here after this lengthy section about our salvation to help us understand these questions, helps us to answer those questions. So that's why we come to chapter 19. Now, I guess next year you're doing chapter 20, which will be interesting about the gospel, um, but that's in the future. We won't go any, any far anywhere beyond that at this point. But that's why chapter 20, uh, 19 is what it is. Now, um, let's look at it then, and I want to uh, suggest to you that there's an easy way to outline chapter 19. I'm one of those guys who thinks in terms of outlines. I don't really like outlining the Greek New Testament, which you like to do a lot. But uh, I like outlines that help me to think logically through. And basically, chapter 19 breaks down into two parts. First, the first five paragraphs deal with the law in the history of salvation, or the history of redemption, or the history that's recorded in the Bible. And it helps us to understand how law functions at different times and places in the history of the world, and especially in the history of his people. And we'll see that as we walk our way through. So that's the the first section, the first five paragraphs deal with law in the history of salvation. Then paragraphs six and seven deal with the law in the order of salvation. They speak to us about the law and how the law relates to us, especially as believers in Jesus Christ. So we can really easily break up this chapter into two parts. What law is about in the history of salvation as recorded in Scripture, and then what law is about as it is presented to us. Now, this is, it's really interesting to recognize the fact that our Puritan fathers thought in these terms because they recognize that Christian theology, as revealed to us in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there's, there's a progression that comes, there are changes that come. The, the circumstances that face All of people, after Adam and Eve fell and were driven from the garden, change over time. There's the the flood that comes and the destruction of the world, and yet a covenant that God makes with Noah that moves on until Abraham, or Abram, I guess we should say in Genesis 12, appears, and God comes and speaks to him in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and makes a covenant with him, the Abrahamic covenant. Now things have changed because God is going to deal especially with one specific group of people. Then as he deals with those people, they're, they're, they go down to Egypt, they spend 400 years there, they're oppressed by the Egyptians, God brings them out, and when he brings them out, he gives them a new covenant, another covenant, and a covenant of obedience that they must keep when they go into the land in order to be able to continue to live in the land with the Lord's blessing. But that covenant is ineffectual, and that covenant was never intended to bring salvation to anyone. No one could ever keep the stipulations of the Mosaic law and find salvation. And So God's purpose was to make a new covenant, and the Gospels and all of the books of what we call the New Testament, remember that testament and covenant are mostly synonymous. Not exactly, but mostly synonymous. You could rename the two sections of your Bible, Old Covenant and New Covenant and you wouldn't do any damage to what is being said there. But there's a change that comes, and there's a change especially that Paul has to explain when Gentiles come into the church. Remember the controversy in Acts chapter 15 where some men came from uh, from Jerusalem down to Antioch? Remember what they said? Unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved? And Luke tells us that there was a great contention that Paul and Barnabas stood up. I I, I like to imagine what that moment was like in the church at Antioch, where Paul is saying, hold on a minute. Justification is by faith alone. Don't add works to it. And these men who had came from Jerusalem said, yes, you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. You need to keep that in order to be a believer in Jesus, in order to be a Christian. And a great conflict that ultimately ended up with the council in Jerusalem. See, these are important questions. And our our Puritan fathers recognized the facts of these questions, and they they noticed that throughout the Bible there are changes that come along the way. So keeping those things in mind, let's look at chapter 19. Paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart, and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. What an what a excellent statement that is. It begins, this chapter begins for us, not with an abstract statement about law, but with a redemptive historical statement about the law. God gave it first to Adam. In the original creation, law was a part of God's creation. As the first man came forth from the hand of God, he was made with the law written on his heart. Now it's interesting to notice the two proof texts. Just turn to them with me. Genesis 1.27 What time is this session supposed to end? I, I don't know. Ten thirty. Okay, thank you, brother. Genesis 1.27. Uh, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. The second proof text, we won't turn there, is Ecclesiastes 7.29, which speaks of the creation of man as upright. Now, that does not mean that he was standing up. That doesn't speak to his physical stature. Apparently, there have been some in the past who have suggested that that's what Ecclesiastes 7.29 is about, but it isn't. Upright there is a metaphor for holiness or righteousness. When Adam came forth from the hand of God, he was holy, he was righteous. Now what the confession is doing here is assuming that bearing God's image and being upright, there was something inherent in Adam that qualified him for this designation being made in the image of God. As I said last night, it's not simply that he was a blank slate awaiting inscription but rather the standard for his obedience was already inscribed on his heart, this is the law of God. And in Adam, it took on two forms. First, the moral law or the internal law written on the heart. That's what the confession tells us. He wasn't a blank slate. He wasn't a moral neuter. Rather, he was made in God's image. Soon as consciousness came to Adam, when the The Spirit was breathed into his nostrils. When the breath of life came upon him, he was in God's image. This is not something that was added to him. This is how he was created. And in being created this way, God himself pronounced Adam to be very good. And this was true from the very beginning, from the moment when Adam received in his nostrils the breath of life, even before there was another command that was given to him, by God. As soon as he was created, Adam was in the image of God and possessed in himself the necessary knowledge to serve and please his Creator. Don't you wish that that's the way it was still? I do. But then the confession teaches us that there is a second uh, commandment, a positive precept. And the Lord willing, we'll talk in much more detail about that tonight. We'll do an exposition of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and make this point from Scripture, but I have to leave that until this evening. God did not leave Adam and Eve with heart-inscribed law alone. He also gave them an external commandment, which was intended to demonstrate by their obedience their allegiance to God alone. His lordship and their wholehearted love for him was the object of this test of probation. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 2. You know what this... Second command that was given to Adam effectively was, the Lord said to Adam, he placed him in this beautiful garden, having everything that he could possibly need. And the Lord said to Adam, you have an abundance. You may eat of every tree of the garden. Everything that you need is there, but I reserve this one tree for myself. And it's as if God is saying to him, Adam, do you love me? Can you show me that you love me? I've given you more than enough of all that you need, but I'm withholding this one tree, the fruit of this tree, for myself. Will you leave it for me and enjoy everything else? That's what God was saying. Adam, do you love me? Show me that you love me by your actions. Of course, Adam failed. And we are what we are and the world is the way that it is because Adam disobeyed the commandment of God. Now, this giving of the law in these two forms bound Adam and all of his descendants to complete obedience to God. Everyone, Adam and all of his descendants, owe perfect obedience to God. Now this is a statement picked up elsewhere in the confession that speaks to us about Adam's headship over the human race. We call this federal headship or covenantal headship, but also the permanent obligation of his descendants to obey the law. And each of these is important. The first has to do with the the law written on the heart and the positive commandment. Adam stood as a representative of us in his actions and by his actions bound his descendants to blessing or to death based upon what he did. Of course, Adam's circumstances were unique in that he alone faced the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and this tree is no longer accessible to us. But when he ate, we ate. You ate. The second part of this speaks to the continuing reality. Because Adam sinned and broke the law, this does not annul the responsibility of, to keep it in its fullness. We are sinners, not just by virtue of our relationship with Adam, but also because of our actual sins. You are guilty of original sin, and you are guilty of the sins that you commit each day in not loving God with all your heart and not loving your neighbor as yourself, violating the principles of the moral law. We must obey the law, and because we never do, we suffer the consequences of true guilt. This is not guilt feelings, this is genuine guilt before the law. break the speed limit, and the policeman pulls you over. It's 35 miles per hour, and you've been going 55 miles per hour. You have genuine guilt before the law. Now, you may be angry that the policeman pulled you over. You may have some guilt feelings, but really, you are guilty before the law because you violated the commandment. In this case, Adam and all of us are truly guilty because we violate God's commandments. We violate his law, and that guilt comes upon us. Now, alongside of this, There is a promise and there is a threat. Now, here again is the uniqueness of Adam's circumstances that we need to understand. In his case, for Adam, obedience meant life and disobedience meant death. Adam was promised life if he fulfilled the command and death if he did not. Now, someone might ask the question, Where is Adam promised life upon fulfilling the command? But the answer is very simple. It's found in the threat. That's where it's found. The opposite of death is life. While only the threat is directly articulated, it's very clear that Adam would have received the opposite of the threat had he been obedient to the command. One theologian called it a matter of simple justice. It's important to recognize the relationship between the first Adam and the second Adam. Because last night we talked very, very briefly about the imputation of the active obedience of Christ that merits our justification. That's the failure that we make by not keeping the covenant of works that Jesus kept for us and his righteousness is granted to us. My friends, if you don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account, you cannot enter into the presence of God. And that comes to us by works. One time. I was preaching on Genesis 2, preaching about the covenant of works, and uh, I was in a church where there was an on-the-fly translation into Spanish. So I'm standing up, and I can't see the translator, but I heard what happened afterwards. I wanted to be a little provocative. So I stood up before the congregation, and I said, I believe in salvation by works. The translator was so flummoxed that she didn't bother to translate me into Spanish. She didn't know what to expect. I hope you believe in salvation by works, too. I absolutely and fully believe in salvation by works. Not mine, but Christ's. My Lord Jesus Christ, His works are what I stand righteous before God in. Nothing that I have, nothing that I do, none of my works merit anything from God. I cannot meet His standard, but Christ has done it. So I am saved by works, by the works Of my Savior Jesus Christ. Then, of course, by his substitutionary death. That's the point that's being made here. It's pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus. Likewise, it speaks to us about uh, Adam's original ability. Another way that uh, we wish that we were like him, but we cannot even conceive of what this really means. We must think of his condition before the fall. He was granted by his Creator. Every resource necessary to overcome the temptation set before him. The Lord gave him a law. He wrote the law in his heart. The the Lord gave him an external law, and the Lord gave him within himself everything that he needed to keep that law. He could do it. He He was very good. He was pronounced by God at the end of the sixth day to be very good. Everything about Adam and Eve was exactly what God intended. And so Adam had all of the resources and all of the ability within himself to merit eternal life and salvation, to receive that from the Lord as he obeyed his word. And the word was, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam didn't do that. And that's why we have a long section on salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, chapter 7 through 18. Look at paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty towards man. Now this picks up some of the things that Dr. Barcelos spoke about last night. And this moves the story forward asserting one of the most important and fundamental aspects of a doctrine of law in the Bible, that is, the same law remains in force throughout all of human history. Now, not as we said, the specific positive commandment. There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you and I can access. It's not on the earth now. That's not the point. But rather, the contents of the law written on the heart. What do we see here? the same law, this moral law that was given to Adam, the the law of nature, the natural law, remains in force after Adam's disobedience. So the confession of faith is moving forward in the history recorded in the Bible, the history of redemption, to the time of the giving of the law, asserting that throughout this period, the same law continued to be in force, binding all people to universal obedience. Um, we let, we, I won't take the time to do this now. Remember last night we looked at Romans two fourteen and 15? Well, that's the proof text here, and they're exactly right. That's what Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 2, that all men have the law written upon their hearts and are subject to the, uh, the, the judgment of God as a result. The paragraph goes on to identify the moral law for us with the Ten Commandments. And as Dr. Barcello said last night, there's something special in the commandments that are written by the finger of God. There's nothing else where that, no place else where that happens. God, by his finger, now God doesn't have a finger, it's a metaphor, but he writes them, he inscribes them on tablets of stone to indicate their permanency. And they break up into two parts. The first four commandments speak to us about our duty towards God summarized by the first great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Well, what does that mean to love God? Does it mean just that I have these powerful emotions towards him, uh, that, that my heart goes out to him and that I long for him and want him uh, at every moment? No, that's not what it's about. It's defined in terms of my willingness to keep him, to, to honor him, to have no other gods before him, to make certain that his worship is pure, To keep his name reverenced and to honor a day that he has set aside for me that's the point that is made for us there so that's the first four commandments that those demonstrate they they teach us they instruct us how we are to love the Lord our God the second six the other tablet the other six tells us our duty to man what we owe to each other in general terms what we owe to each other so we honor our father and our mother, which teaches us about authority and the relationship that we have to authority. Um, do not commit murder, do not kill, which on the other side tells us that we are to maintain life. Um, do not commit adultery, it speaks about purity in life and the fact that we must keep ourselves from every impure thought and relationship. Uh, do not steal, we, we don't take from others and we protect that which belongs to them. Um, Ninth commandment, um, somebody help me here. Uh, what is it? Speak to, Right, don't, don't, uh, no false witness, thank you for that. And of course the 10th commandment, which is very internal and speaks about coveting. But that's how I love my neighbor, in general terms. Now the expositions that we have of the 10 commandments open up all the various aspects of these things, but that's the basis. And it's the same law that was given to Adam but now is, has been give, written, it's still written on the heart of all men and to which we must give obedience. We love God and we love our neighbor. The third paragraph. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, And partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ the true Messiah and only lawgiver who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. Now, notice that there's another gift. It's interesting that our Puritan fathers use the word give when they speak about the law of Moses that was presented Israel. Now, certainly we must say that God imposed this law on Israel. That's true. But alongside of an imposition, we have to say that he gave it to them. The law in all of its forms always partakes of a gracious character. Not that it brings grace, but that it reveals to us God's grace and his mercy. It sends us to Christ. Uh, You know, the law in one sense is a condemning power But on the other hand, it's my friend. Why is it my friend? Because when it shows me my sins, it drives me to Christ. It reminds me that I have nothing. I cannot bring anything in my hands to him. But if I come to him through the Savior, through the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be received. So in that sense, the law is my friend because it helps me to go to him. Now, this Mosaic law that was given had several specific purposes. First, there are ceremonial laws. And these ceremonial laws were typical prefigurements of Christ. These were the ordinances of worship, especially the sacrificial system. Now, I don't know anyone who denies this, but that's part of what's going on in the Mosaic system. When you look at all of the sacrifices that were required, all of them point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. Some of them held forth moral duties and instructions. There is a relationship between positive and moral law. Look at First Corinthians five seven. It's an interesting text. It's the proof text at this point. First Corinthians five seven. <clears throat> Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now here, Paul urges the Corinthians to cast out their own leaven, that is the grievously sinning man. In this way, the presence of leaven stands for sin (coughs) and holds forth an instruction of moral duties. So even in the requirements of the ceremonial law, are ways in which it points to Christ. Now, towards the end of the paragraph, we read that these were temporary, and they have been abrogated by Christ. <clears throat> the independents, that is the, the Congregationalists who published the Savoy Declaration in 1658, upon which our confession of faith is built, and the Baptists following them, make an important addition at this point to Westminster because they assert that the ceremonial laws are totally abrogated by Christ. Our brother said last night that we read this in their literature. Here it is. As a package, the whole of the Mosaic law has been taken away by our Lord Jesus. And this is the whole point of the dismantling of the system of Mosaic circumcision. Christ came, and as Lord and Messiah put an end to the obligation of the things that we read in the Mosaic law. They were positive precepts intended for a specific period of time. They set apart Israel, and they demonstrated whether or not Israel was committed to the Lord so that they might live in the land, but they no longer have any abiding obligation for New Testament believers. You do not have to keep the Mosaic law. You can leave it in the past. Now, we could unpack that for a long time, It's important to note that fact, though. And anyone who would seek to impose upon Christian believers any of the precepts of the Mosaic Law has gone beyond what the Scriptures teach. They've they've intruded the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And we must be careful not to allow that to happen. Now, what we have here is a really sweeping statement because it treats the Mosaic Law as a package, and rightly so. The, Lord, the laws that are associated with the obsolete covenant are themselves obsolete. So read them in your devotions, see how they point to Christ. Um, one of the pastors at our church in Texas right now is preaching on the book of Leviticus, helping us to see how useful the book of Leviticus as it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm certain, he's one of our graduates, I'm certain that he won't tell us that we need to obey all of the stipulations of the Levitical Code because we're not Jews living in the land any longer. We're Gentiles living far away at a time much later. Those things have been removed for us in Christ. There's another kind of law that is contained in the Mosaic Covenant, and these are the judicial laws. Another part of the giving of the law had to do with theocracy in Israel. God gave them laws to govern their statehood in the land, and they belonged to the Mosaic institution, and they have expired, though their general equity may be of moral use. Now, brother, you're going to be dealing with general equity, aren't you? No. Thanks a lot. I thought you were. You will. Okay. Maybe. We, we didn't talk ahead of time, although he said last night we did. I have 10 minutes, yeah. Well, the proof text is very interesting from 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't read paragraph four and I ought to have done that, that's my fault, forgive me. Let's read it. To them also he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. by the way, This is one of the places. There are a couple of places in the Confession where some modern versions have um, mistakes. And I've got a copy of one that reads their general equity only being of modern use. I don't know how that entered in, but it's not modern. Modern does not belong there. It's moral. Uh, In the work that I've done, I've worked with copies from the 17th century, first edition copies. So I know what the text ought to be, because I've had access to those resources. Modern doesn't go here. If that's what's in yours, cross it out and write in moral. There are a couple of places where this happens in the confession of faith. A couple of, sometimes, um, printer's errors, sometimes changes that were made uh, more recently. Um, Spurgeon changed chapter 10. Chapter 10, paragraph three says, Elect infants dying in infancy are saved and regenerated by Christ through the Spirit who works where, when, how, and will he pleases. Yes, I did memorize that one. Spurgeon dropped the word elect. I, many times people have asked me, does elect really belong there? Yes, it does. So it's elect infants dying in infancy. Now, let's take a look at this proof text in 1 Corinthians 9 because it is interesting. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 10. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now, this is a judicial law. That's what it's about. Not not restricting the ox from eating while he's circling and threshing the grain, pulling the heavy stone. He ought to be able to partake of his labors. He ought to be able to benefit from what he's doing. That's the point. It's a judicial law. It's not ceremonial. It has nothing to do with God's worship because it relates to an ox. But the point is, it teaches us an equitable principle. And the equitable principle, the general equity of this, is that the worker, even when a beast, deserves the same reward for his labor. So everyone who works deserves something as a result of the the effort that he or she puts into what it is. You see how general equity works. Uh, it's, it's not so much about the ox, though I hope that you are kind to the beasts in your home, whatever they might happen to be. For us, it's only for cats. But we take care of the cats. In fact, they're all strays, and the reason we have them is that they came and we began to feed them, the mother with kittens, and we wanted to take care of them and all the rest. You probably have many more than that. And it's right for you to take care of them. But the point is, this is pointing us to a greater principle. The worker is worthy of his wages general equity. The next paragraph, paragraph five. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Now, this is an important point. While two expressions of the law intended for a specific time and a specific place have expired, there remains in force a law, the so-called moral law, and it is perpetual in its obligation. Now, what we have here may seem like a simple assertion, but it's not. And it's based upon a careful observation of the Scriptures. Look at the proof texts again. Time is running out, so let me just read them for you. Romans 13, 8 through 10. O no man anything... But to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul there is assuming commandments from the second table of the law, as part of the duty and definition of what love is. James 2, 8-10, very similar. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are a transgressor of the law, so speak and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty." Now, these two proof texts are used because in these passages, the presence of elements of the Ten Commandments are used in the apostles' argument to support their doctrine. And our Puritan fathers recognized this and employed these texts. Both James and Paul, without any apology, turned to the Ten Commandments as obligating words for contemporary society. We're obliged to them, not just because they're repeated in the New Testament, but because they are moral. They define for us what love to neighbor is. Whether a believer or a non-believer, the moral law obliges. And, of course, this, the, the, there's, there's a whole other side to this. I almost said a whole nother, but a whole other side to this. And the whole other side is there was a problem in the 17th century with a doctrine known as antinomianism. And antinomianism argued that we're not obliged to keep the law. Now, it had different forms. But this is specifically focused upon the problem of antinomianism, to say, yes, we've been forgiven of our sins in Christ. Yes, we are new creatures in Christ. The Spirit has come to indwell us. But that means now that we must show our gratitude to the Lord by our obedience to his commandments, and that begins with the moral law. That's the point that's being made here. Now, this is based upon... A couple of things. The content of the laws, notice, not only in regard to the matter contained, this probably has a reference to what we've already read, but also the authority of God. The moral law came from God's own hand in a unique way. Only the Ten Commandments rest on God's moral nature and reflect his perfection. Ernest Kevin, in his book, The Grace of Law, says this, the Puritans began their thinking on this subject not with an abstract concept of law, but with the experimental awareness of the exalted lawgiver. Behind the lex, Latin for law, behind the lex stood the legislator. And in Latin, there's a relationship between them. It depends on how uh, they, they are declined. To them, the law must always be the law of God, and all their doctrinal formulations were dominated by the recognition of God's overwhelming greatness. The Paragraph ends by teaching us that Christ does not dissolve this obligation, but strengthens it. The point is that the moral law, the natural law, that which is written on Gentiles' hearts, revealed in the Ten Commandments, carries throughout redemptive history. It's always in force. And this statement is important in the light of paragraphs three and four. Remember we said that we're taught that the whole Mosaic order is taken away. We saw a sweeping statement about the abrogation of ceremonial and judicial laws, but here we see that Christ as king strengthens obligation to the aspect of law that always continues. It's the moral law. So the gospel never opposes the law, rather it strengthens it. In fact, this has everything to do with Christ's person and work, but that's a road that we can't pursue right now. What law did Jesus die to satisfy that you, as a Gentile, were guilty of. Not the law of Moses. You were guilty of violating the moral law. And our Lord Jesus died and endured suffering on our behalf because we are guilty of violation of that law. Oh, very few, very little time left to me. Paragraph 6 and 7, this is where the change comes. Now we're not talking about the law and the history of salvation. We're talking about the law as it relates to the order of salvation, to the experience of conversion. Paragraph 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, that's what Adam's state was, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred against sin. Together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show that what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unalloyed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works. So as man's doing good and refraining from evil for the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. What an important statement this is. The law must be understood carefully in relationship To the believer. First off, it is not a covenant of works. The law for us is not a covenant of works. It does not and it cannot justify anyone. Now, there was an error in the 17th century that was the opposite of antinomianism. It's called neonomianism, in which the law is somehow added to the gospel. And there were certain Puritans, the most prominent of them being Richard Baxter, who advocated neonomianism. In fact, he argued that the gospel is a new law, a milder law, and yet a law that must be kept. He was totally wrong on justification by faith. He missed it completely. If he were living in our day, he would probably be outside the pale of Orthodox churches as a result of his views of justification. But though the law cannot justify and it only condemns us, it doesn't make it irrelevant and useless. It is of great use. As a rule of life. It's a tremendous help to us as believers and it serves to do several things. It informs us of our duties towards God. It exposes our sins. It's a tool of self-examination by which we are convicted of our sins, by which we are humbled for our sins, by which hatred of sin is promoted in our hearts and all of these things in order to press us to Christ because it reminds us We have nothing, we need our Savior desperately. Likewise, it serves as a check on sin. It restrains corruptions by forbidding sin. You know this by experience. How many times have you been tempted to do something, and then the law of God comes to your mind, and you say, no, I would sin against God if I did this thing, whatever it is. It demonstrates the punishments that are due to sin. It sheds light on our afflictions. Helps us to understand at times, not always, we need to be careful with that, but at times, why afflictions come to us. They are the righteous works of a holy God who takes the rod to his child. If a father fails to discipline his child, he doesn't love him. Our Lord loves us and he disciplines us because of our sins. But its promises show God's approval of obedience. And the blessings he bestows, though not as a covenant of works. That's Israel was remained in the land so long as they obeyed the law. That's not the case with us. We don't keep our salvation because we keep the law. Our salvation is perm- promised to us and it is permanent forever. Obedience to the law does not mean that the believer is under the law and somehow not under grace. By obeying the law, we show the fact that we are under grace. It's the definition of our gratitude to the Lord in heaven above. And then finally, paragraph seven, the law and the gospel. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it, the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Now, I'm pretty certain that Dr. Barcellus will be dealing with this tomorrow, so I won't say any more about it. Well... That's an adequate and rapid treatment through chapter 19, but I hope that it gives you some insight. Five paragraphs that deal with the history of salvation, two paragraphs that deal with us in the order of salvation, and how we relate to the law. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray. O oh Lord, the law does convict us and it shows us our sin. It points us to Christ. We see in his active obedience a heartfelt love for you and for his neighbor, and we thank you that that is imputed to us, that when we stand before you, we do not do so on the basis of the accumulation of our efforts. It's not our merit. It's his. So we gladly confess our sins. We are guilty before your law, and we come boldly to your throne through Jesus Christ our Lord asking you to receive us, to accept the worship that we bring. Teach us these things. Help us to learn them. We pray that your law would be ever more precious to us and would be ever more consciously for us a guide to demonstrate our love to you and to our neighbor. We ask in Jesus' name.